Well, good morning, everyone. It's an honor and a blessing to be here with you. Um, you know, first off, probably, um, you, most of you may know me, some of you may not. Um, I'm just a feller. Um, I, I, I feel a bit uh, overpowered sometimes when I get to be among brothers like you've got here. Um, you guys don't know all this, and my wife and I, we don't come from Mennonite background. Um, we come from a Southern Baptist background, but it's really interesting when we get to come up here and meet people with the names of all the people in our church that we don't know anything about them. We see where y'all come from, or where they come from. And uh, so y'all just remember you told a heavy burden in that, and uh, they do as well. And, uh, but I'll, I'll bring you greetings from the church there in Monticello, Lighthouse Mennonite Church. Um, but it, it, it really is fun. And even adding to that this morning, Brother Claire and David being here, um, they probably don't think much about it, but they were very integral in our church beginning there at Lighthouse in Monticello. Um, uh, you guys, David, were almost, we almost thought to put you on the roll. Uh, y'all came so often, and uh, Dennis and Vi bringing y'all along. And, and I, I mentioned to David, I didn't realize how long it's been since I've seen him. And I can't imagine how I look to him, but he looks older to me. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, I just remember the young boy. And uh, so it's, it's, it's good to be here. God bless y'all. And thank you for inviting us back. We appreciate that. Um, one thing I will mention, and I, I don't know that it makes a hill of beans worth a difference, but I will. Um, I'm not an ordained man. I'm just a feller uh, who, who loves the Lord and does everything he can to serve him. And so um, that's where I stand from. So you, I don't have any official capacity or anything other than just being a Christian who loves the Lord. Um, I will mention, though, I am a little uncomfortable. Two things. One thing, I normally don't get to stand here. I stand down yonder um, if I get to speak or say anything. And uh, so thank you all for, for that privilege. But number two, uh, most of the time when I preach, I don't wear shoes. Um, when I get the chance to speak, I'm usually in India or Haiti or somewhere, and you don't wear shoes. And so they're outside the door with everybody else's, and you just hope that yours are recognizable when you get to leave and uh, that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, it's a little different standing in nice shoes when you get to stand up here. But um, this morning I wanted to share a little bit about the reasoning in the biblical call for the church to be involved in evangelism. And uh, I'm, I'm, and actually both of the messages I have planned today and this evening um, are very, very common scriptures to you. I trust that you'll turn to them when I ask you to, but I know that you know most of them by heart. Um, don't know that I'm going to teach you anything greatly new. I hope, though, that I do get to remind you of some things and emphasize a few things and just encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Um, you know, one thing I saw this morning is working really good for you. Uh, we were noticing the men's classes over this morning and the intermediates were going back into their room and I'm not sure how they all fit. It must be a huge room back there. Um, you know, you, you guys are doing wonderful with bringing the next generation in to the church and God bless you for that. And, and, and the preschoolers, I'm not used to seeing a whole pew 
you taken up like that with people sitting close to each other. Um, that's impressive, and, and God bless you. That's just wonderful. But go ahead if you would, and I'm going to jump around just a little, and, I, and I, you'll understand more why a little later. But go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, please. Now, one thing that I've done here, and... Um, I'll ask a bit of forgiveness for it. I've rewritten Romans chapter 12, or not rewritten. I've sort of paraphrased it, sort of added a little and taken away. I don't think I took away anything, but added a little. Um, I, I like to call it, this is the B-R-E translation, the Brother Ricky Expounded translation. But uh, read with me here, and you'll understand more of why I want to do this after we get started. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Now, I also use 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 as sort of a basis of some of the expounding that I've done here with Romans 12. So um, just follow along as I read and, and uh, see if it matches up with what you understand. So brothers, since God has shown us such great mercy I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Your offering must be only for God and pleasing to him. This is the spiritual way for you to worship. Do not seek to change yourselves to be like the people of this world, but be changed within by a new God's way of thinking. Then you will be able to decide what God wants for you. And you will be able to know what is good and pleasing to God and what is perfect. God has given me and you a special gift. That gift is the grace and the mercy of God. That is why I have something to say to every one of us. We should never think that we are better than we are. For God's word says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Christ. We must ourselves we must see ourselves as we really are in God's eyes, not in the eyes of man. Decide what, what you are and want to be by the amount of faith God has given you. Each one of us has a body, and our body has many parts. These parts all have different uses. In the same way, we are many parts, but in Christ we are all one body. Each one is a part of that body, and each part belongs to all the other parts. We all have different gifts. Each gift came because of the grace that God gave to us. If one has the gift of proclaiming the word of God, he should use that gift with the faith that he has. If one has the gift of serving others, he should serve accordingly. If one has the gift of teaching, he should teach if one has the gift of encouraging others, he should encourage. Be like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. If one has the gift of giving to others, he should give freely and joyfully and often. If one has the gift of being a leader, he should do his best when he is given the privilege to lead. If one has the gift of showing kindness to others, that person should do so with joy. Your love must be real. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love each other like brothers and sisters. Give your brothers and sisters more honor than you desire for yourselves. Do not be lazy, but work hard. Serve the Lord with all your heart. 
Be joyful because you have hope. Be patient when trouble comes. Pray at all times. Share with God's people who need help. Bring strangers in need into your homes. Wish good for those who do bad things to you. Wish them well and do not curse them. Be happy with those who are happy. Be sad with those who are sad. Live together in peace with each other. Do not be proud, but make friends with those who seem unimportant. Do not think how smart or special that you are. If someone does wrong to you, do not pay him back by doing wrong to him. Respect what others think. Philippians 2, 1-4 Do your best to live in peace with everyone. My friends, do not try to punish others when they wrong you. Wait for God to punish them with his anger. It is written, I am the one who punishes, I will pay back, says the Lord. But you should do this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. Doing this will be like pouring burning coals on his head. Do not let evil defeat you, but defeat evil by doing good. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be together here today. Lord, I thank you for your word and for the truths of your word. Father, I just ask that you would impress it upon our hearts that we might only hear, but Lord, we would do the things that you've instructed us to do today. But Lord, may we do everything to the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, I should also say before I get started, because I'll forget and uh, surely will, and I'll, I'll feel bad about it. My wife will be angry with me, and I don't like an angry wife. Um, thank you so much to Brother Elam and Sister Ellen for taking such good care of us, and they're not done with the job yet, but they're doing great. So y'all can feel confident in that and uh, be pleased with them. Uh, we thank y'all. And, and, and when I'm talking about giving your enemies a drink and Caring for folks. That's not us. We're not y'all's enemies now, but y'all are doing so good. And thank you for that. And we appreciate that. And uh, we do. Now, when we look, the one reason and kind of the subject that I want to speak about today is quite different on the one hand than what we've already read. But I want you to think about something and look back at your page there at Romans chapter 12. And I want you to notice something. The apostle is telling us that now you and I have been reassured of our equipment and of our training and of our mission. Everything we need to know, we just read in order to carry the gospel forward as we know it. The gospel being the story of Jesus Christ and him crucified and rising again. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you've all know now, and the Bible says, the apostle said, you have received these things. If you call yourself a Christian, if you accept the understanding that you are his, you are in Christ and Christ is in you, and you want to serve God and him only, you have been, and you've received your baptism, you've received the Holy Spirit coming upon you and dwelling in your life and working within you, you have already everything that you need. 
But you know, I've been privileged uh, to attend a number of evangelistic meetings before. And it's amazing to me, even, and I'm talking, uh, and this would have been in the Baptist church more than the Mennonite church, but even being there and being among uh, a 60, 70% pastor's audience, how many people feel they're not equipped to do the job of evangelism? They, you know, brother so-and-so, oh my goodness, ain't he good? And, and, and sister, can't she sing? And, you know, if I could do that, boy, I could really share Christ's word with others. But you can do what God has given you to do. So do it. And I'm always impressed from a, such a simple story in the Bible that just, just, it's so good that you almost don't even need to hear it, but you do. And that's in Luke chapter 10. So if you want to go ahead and flip over to there, beginning at verse 25, Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and I'm going to find it with you. And I hope I don't offend anybody. Um, I, I tend to, I like to find my Bible and use my Bible on the iPad, and so that's the way I do, and so I stick with that. And so if you see me monkeying with stuff, that's what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. It's just good stuff. But uh, look here and, and follow along as we read. And we're going to see one man who did exactly what he was supposed to do with the equipment that God gave him. And beginning at verse 25 uh, there, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered, and said, and you know the story, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. And I'm going to stop reading right there for a minute. You know, in Jesus' time, it was very well expected, most expected, that uh, rabbis would discuss theological matters in public. They did that for a lot of reasons. One, to challenge each other, which is good. Another was so that people they, who were on looking would listen and learn. It's sort of like, you know, getting a uh, theological discussion uh, on the job. Uh, hopefully it's all right, but, you know, I mean, we've all heard theological discussions on the job that are anything but right. But this would be a good one, you know, and you learn from what's being said. I know one time I was working a night shift at a company and, and uh, this fella came in and uh, one of the truck drivers there and uh, I was working in the shop and some of the people were arguing something and this guy I never ever 
would have dreamed this guy would be one who would do such a thing. Um, truck driver now, don't forget, he spoke up and he made a comment to them and they didn't seem to like his comment. Well, he just pulled out, whooped out his little New Testament and flipped to the pages and showed them and they shut up. And I never expected the man to have a Bible in his pocket, you know, but thank the Lord he did. And it did quiet down the discussion and set things aright. But, you know, but in Jesus' day, this was a real common thing that happened. They would be debating and they would ask one questions and they would expound on that. And you'll remember when Jesus was 12 and he was there at the temple and his family thought he was lost and he knew just where he was. But anyway, he was there and just, he was amazing the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees and, and all of those around him um, and the priest with his wisdom and the knowledge he had from the scriptures. Of course, we know <laughs> the man wrote the scriptures, so you know, of course he knows what it says, but he did, and they, he was telling them what things really meant and, and helping them to understand. Now, the question that this man asked, who is my neighbor? Is there anything wrong with that question? Nah, it's a good question. It's fair. It was a, but the problem was it was a good question with a bad motive. You ever done that before? We've all been guilty of that, I'm afraid. But you see, the, the lawyer was hoping to trap the Lord. Jesus was saying so many good things and nobody gets away with saying that many good things without slipping up. And they wanted to catch him in that slip. And they wanted to use it against him because they were jealous of the ministry that he had and that he was building. And they just didn't, you know, their, their life was beginning to be topsy-turvy, turned upside down. And they could feel that coming on by what Christ was teaching. And it, this was not good for them. And so they wanted to catch him and to cause problems for him. However, Jesus used the man's question to trap him as opposed to being trapped. The, what do you call it, the, the prey became the, the prowess or whatever, so I, you know, some little terminology there, but Jesus became the one on the offensive as opposed to the one on the defensive. And you know, I wonder sometimes though, it, do you ever, I don't know, and I'm gonna ask for a little show of hands real quick. When you read the scriptures, do you ever get a good feeling about scribes and Pharisees and priests? Or do you get the feeling that Jesus really didn't like them and was constantly putting them down? And, and so you got to answer one or the other now. Do you think that they were trying to do good or do you think that they were just totally against Christ? Now, first hands, the ones who think they really were trying to do good, raise your hand. Oh, come on. Not a hand in the church? Those of you who think that they were pretty bad and that Jesus lambasted them time and time again and their motives were bad and their actions were bad, raise your hand. Now, some of y'all ain't voting, so I don't know who y'all, but anyhow, we'll, we'll let that slide. I'm just curious because, you know, as I read the Bible, and I've spent a lot of time in, uh, for various reasons in some of the books that are a little more obscure, 
um, in the Old Testament even around Ezra and Nehemiah and some of those and reading after the period of the judges and then you got the the 70 year captivity and all that you know and some of the kings and stuff uh, a lot of that gets confusing and even when I try to think about it I get confused when thinking but uh, but it's good stuff to read but I wonder sometimes if we know now how many of you think good about Joseph of Arimathea Okay, how many of you think good about um, um, Nicodemus? Now, he was Pharisees, and you didn't think nothing good about it earlier when I said, right? Okay, so, yeah, and that's all right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, But we know that some of them did have a heart for God. They were struggling, and they were a bit confused, but they did have a heart for God and even followed God. God and even risk their own life asking for his body after his death and and giving up their own tomb for his bones and that's that's commendable I mean you know uh, you what else what more could you give someone than that other than your life and so that was that was nice that they did but you got to admit though when Jesus asked the question about what does God demand how good was the answer that that lawyer gave. I mean, was that awesome? You know, many of you would probably have watched some YouTube videos from time to time, or maybe you were attended a debate um, between the Christian and non-Christian view or some of those sort of things, Christians and Muslims, you know, debating and that sort of thing. And don't you love it when the Christian guy or girl comes up with this amazing statement that just sort of shuts her down? And you sit back and like, yeah, what's they going to do with that? You know, and it just feels so good. And I know we ain't supposed to do that, but we do. And, but it does feel so good when you see that. That's kind of what this lawyer thought that he did when he gave this answer. Because it was an outstanding question. And uh, uh, that he had, or a good question he asked, but an outstanding answer that he had for Christ. But then, Jesus wasn't satisfied with the outstanding answer. Because Jesus knows that, okay, we know, one, we know some things with our head. And we know other things with our heart. Jesus, he got the fact that this lawyer was right in his head. But where was he in his heart? And you know, one thing we're going to get to eventually today too, I'll go ahead and mention it is it's not enough to have it in your heart. And the Jesus knew that about this lawyer and this scribe, depending on which version that you read. Um, And Jesus was getting to the crux of that because he sent the man back to the law. And he said, you know, the law does not save anyone. And Galatians, the apostle told us in Galatians 2, 16 and 21, he reminds us that the law is wonderful, but the law saves no one. It does not get the job done. It shows us we need to be saved, but it does not provide the way. And that's what the Jews had for how many, 4,000 years, I guess, at this point. They had the law. 
but they had no way of salvation. Yeah, you know, they could cover some sins with sacrifices and offerings and stuff like that, but it never displaced, never took care of this sin that they carried around. And Galatians 3.21 speaks to the same. But because the law shows us that we need to be saved, we need to pay attention. There can be no real conversion without conviction. And the law is what God uses to convict sinners. You know, I trust that every one of you, when you made a profession to Christ, you made that profession because you recognized yourself as a sinner before God and that you could not do anything to save yourself and you fall upon the grace of God to do that for you and you commit your life to him then to follow him. But I know too often, and I've seen it happen, people will um, get saved, they'll pray the sinner's prayer, they'll even be baptized and, and look like a Christian for a long time simply because everybody else in their age group has done that and they're the last holdout. Or, they, or maybe they want to be a leader and they step out first. Or the, the people they work with are good people and they want to be like those people and so that's why they do it. And not that those are not good reasons. I mean, those are admirable reasons, but they're not the real reason why we're saved. We must see what, what our sin is and who we are and how to deal with it and approach it that way. And Jesus was doing that with this scribe, this lawyer. Well, the scribe did give the right answer, but he, he refused to apply it personally to himself. And he would not admit his own lack of love for God. You know, we were mentioning this morning in Sunday school, Claire, we were talking about that a little bit in confession, how important confession is and admission of our sin. But so many people want to just sort of sweep things under the rug and y'all didn't really see that, did you? You know, and move on and that sort of thing. That's not God's intention. God's intention is for us to confess our sin to him, to those we offend, to whomever is necessary, and to turn from those sins. It's not enough. And you know, confession can be great, but if we don't turn from what we're confessing, we've done nothing but humiliated ourselves and God. And that's not God's intention either. So it's got to be done and it's got to be real and it's got to be experienced. Well, he did give the right answer, but he didn't apply it to himself and Jesus saw that so instead of being justified by throwing himself on the mercy of God which this man could have been um, you, know, you remember reading in the story of the publican and the sinner they both went into the temple but did you ever notice that it talks about the Pharisee prayed to himself dear God who are you supposed to be praying to you know, when we were living in India, I had a privilege um, there uh, just a couple of days before we left the country. And I was so sad it happened then. But I was given a privilege to talk to spend a day with a Hindu priest. And uh, they came and, and I was just riding my bicycle down the road. They invited me to come to the temple. The headman did to talk to his priest. And I said, sure. And uh, so, you know, they knew I were, I was, he addressed me as pastor and I, I ain't, but he addressed me that way. And, you, you know, it's just what you get associated with, I guess. And, uh, but I went and met the, the, the Hindu priest and we talked for a while. 
And after, you know, we had the biscuits and the tea and, and, and we shared a little coffee as well. And, and, and I wasn't supposed to, but I did. And then we, he showed me a little bit about his operation there, what the temple was involved in and how he does things and what's going on. He said, now, I have a question for you. I was like, oh boy, here it comes, you know. I said, okay, what is your question? And he said, now you have to promise to answer me completely and truthfully. I said, sure, you know, I couldn't imagine what he wanted to know. Now this was a priest who, who was the priest of the Hindu temple of the, Holy, of the eternal flame, okay? I mean, this wasn't just a small time job or doer. He's dressed up in the orange robes and his, he had a wife and two children and they're there and a lot of staff that was underneath him. And he said, and I was there in front of the head man as well. He's an older man who sort of leads the temple, but the priest is the man who's in charge there. And uh, he said, can you tell me how do you get people to pray? How would you answer that? Not only did he ask me, how do you get them to pray? He went on to say, you know, it's easy for me. Uh, and, and we were, we were standing in his temple at that point, And he had this whole wall full of little, uh, what do you call it, icons, images. Um, images, I guess, is the best word little imitation gods around him, you know. And he had the different candles lit at places, and, and he had showed me how they worship. He had led a little worship service there with some people who came, and, you know, they do the thing with what the flame burning, and they take, and I don't want to knock over that water, but I need the water. So, but they'll say this is a flame, and they'll take their hands over that flame, and they rub it on their hand and their face, you know, and this, and take a little more, and they'll take and rub on others, and then he dips in the ash pot at the bottom of the little flame thing there and, you know, dots the people's heads in there. Now, he had given me freedom to watch that and particip or participate if I wanted, but he knew I wouldn't. But he told me I was, you know, free to do that. But I, I watched, you know, nicely and uh, him doing his thing. He said, now, you know, it's easy for me to teach people to bow down, prostrate themselves, crawl on their knees for long ways upstairs sometimes and to, to pray to these gods. But he said, I know you're a Christian. And he said, you pray to an invisible God. How do you pray to something that isn't there? I said, well, he is there. Yeah, right. You know, I, I see my gods. Where's yours? I said, my God is everywhere. Oh, now, you know, and, and he knew the philosophy thing, you know, this new age thing, you know, all is God, God is all, and blah, blah, blah. And, and, he's, and I said, no, 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 no. We're not talking about any of these philosophies. I'm just talking about my God is the one who created everything you have on these walls. Now, he didn't create your images, but he created the wood and the stone that these things are made from, and the clay and, and the wax and the various things. And yeah, you know, and I see you, and he created you, and he created me, and he created many others, and he continues in the creation business even today, and we talked about it, and we went on, and he said, so that's how you teach people to pray. I said, yeah, exactly. I said, you know, God is the God of all of these things that you've got, and I wish so bad that you could understand that, and not just understand it, but come under his authority and serve him as opposed to all these other ways. And 
well, I'll think about that, he said. You know, and I, that's the best answer I could get after all day, and that's all right. He invited Maria and, and my daughter Tiffany back you know, to come back and visit and spend another day with him and talk more, and we had to go home, so I didn't get the privilege for that. But, you know, it was just one of those things. But who, who, do you, who are you serving? What are you doing? Um, is God real? Um, is he really? To, to Jesus, he knew who God was. He left the presence of God to come down to earth. He knew what was there waiting for him. He knew who he was serving here. Do we? That's the question. Because if we do, you, there's some things you cannot do. And there's some things that you must do. You know, in telling people about my father, um, daddy was not always a good man, but, uh, or a godly man, I should say, but he was a good man. And sometimes it's difficult for people um, um, they, you know, I'll talk about things and we'll, we'll, I'll talk, but when I talk about daddy, I remember what daddy used to tell me years ago. Uh, one day I was going out and he, he reminded me, he said, son, don't forget whose you are. He didn't say who you are. He said, whose you are. I was his son and I was responsible for representing him to the world when I went out and I did my best to do that. But much more than that, who is my true eternal father? God the Father. We, we're here to represent him to the world. And we've got to do that. And how can you represent someone that you never admit you belong to? You know, that's tough. A lot of people in this world, they'll be involved in discussions at work or at the store or wherever. Generally not in church. We're all pious at church. Y'all know that. But we'll be, you know, just in the workaday world things. And Christ might be getting slandered a bit and we just sit back. And you don't, might not laugh, but you just, yeah, I wish they wouldn't think those things or say those things. But you move on and you don't say anything. Why do you do that? Now, I know there's times that you just, you know, ignore things and you move on and we, we're not up for a constant fight. But, guys, this is a rough world we live in. And Christ is being besmirched and God is being besmirched. We need to speak up for him. Unfortunately, sometimes people aren't living a life well enough that they feel justified to say anything about it. And that's kind of where we find ourselves. And we should never find ourselves that way. But we sometimes do. Well, the scribe refused to admit personally his downfall here. And he tried to justify himself and to wiggle out of his predicament. And he used an old debating tactic. If you've ever had a privilege, I, I won't even ask, but if you've ever had the privilege to take part in a debate in, in a public forum um, for the Christian cause or for Christ, um, there's one tactic that can really mess up a good debate if you get the privilege. And that is if you, if you wind up in the position of having to define your terms. If you're in a group and if you can't speak the terms that they're speaking and you have to define every word that you say, what it means, you've lost the debate. You're not going to win that because they don't, you, you're, you're, you're speaking a different language, a different dialect, a different, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, my daughter and I were in India about a month ago now 
And uh, we ran into, oh my mercy, we ran into some problems in the airport. And, we're, and of course it didn't happen in France where there's enough English speaking people. It happened in India. And we're there and this is kind of a, it's not, it's, it's an international city. But I, and, and I thought this was going to be a great airport. Never flew through it before. Uh, if you ever get the chance, don't fly through Bangalore. It's a bad, bad idea. But we tried and it was kind of a podunk kind of a feeling place there and we ran into a problem my daughter's case didn't make it and we're trying to find out what's going on not only that they um, canceled our flight across the country and we're just in, in you know pretty bad and I've got a person waiting for me at the airport on the other side of the country I'm paying him by the hour for him and his car and and I would just so I'm we're asking for help and the more we asked for help the less help we got and I'm, you know, why can't you understand me? And then they would talk back in uh, whatever language they were speaking over in, the, in the, um, Kerala, probably Carolyn language, I guess. They were, spe- they were speaking back, and I don't speak Carolyn. I don't even speak Aria or, Andra or, or um, um, uh, Telugu in the states that we work in. And they didn't speak English. And so how much help are you going to get out of somebody who, you know, you're asking the question and they don't even know what the question is, much less they can they tell you the answer. And then call Air France and they don't answer the phone and you can't get Wi-Fi. And now you got, how are you going to get Wi-Fi in an airport with an American phone when you got to have an Indian phone to get an OTP? Or what are they called? Is that an OTP? To get an OPTP to use data in their airport. So what are you going to do? You know, it was a, it was a challenge. And so... We worked through that as best we could, and uh, so that's what happens with that. But we need to know the language that we speak. When we're with people, speak the language, you know? Um, and but just you don't want to put yourself in a, in a position of having to d- define. But that's what this scribe was saying to Jesus. Now, how hard was it to say? Jesus told him what to do, and he said, but who is my neighbor? You know who your neighbors are. The scribe acted like he did not know. And you know, one of the interesting things about this, and now I, I do realize that some of the things I'm going to say might offend somebody, and I apologize for that up front. I ain't trying to hurt nobody. But there's a few things about this parable that I think we've done too much with it. And so I'm just going to give you a little more simple stuff here. But actually, you know, I mentioned the word that this is a parable. You ever notice that this story of the Good Samaritan has never been called a parable. You ever notice that? Now, what is a parable? You know what a parable is. A parable is a story to go along with the truth. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he did not give this as a parable. That's an important fact that you note. And I'll tell you why. I believe that as well. Not only was it not, Jesus never called it a parable and neither did any of the disciples when they were talking about it or any preachers that I know of call it a parable. I hope not because then we've got to correct them and that's not nice to do. So you don't want to do that. Jesus was telling a story about a man, but this man made the Jews look bad and it made the Samaritans look good. Now I don't have to tell you about the history behind that. You know what the history is, but that was a dangerous thing to to do when you're in a Jewish country, among Jewish people. And I do that among the Samaritans, yeah, they're going to love you for it. Do it among the Jews, eh, not so much. They don't want to look bad to their quote-unquote enemies. And so Jesus tells this story. You know, it would also be, if this was a parable, this scribe, this lawyer could have told Jesus, ah, nice story, but it's made up. 
And it would have been if it was a parable. It wasn't a parable. This was an account. Interestingly enough, this was an account that the, the scribe never questioned the validity or the truth of this story that Jesus told. So that means he accepted the truth and the validity of what Jesus was saying about the Pharisee, the scribe, the Samaritan, and the man. Jesus accepted these things. And there were reasons for that. Um, but they could have easily said, if it was a parable, oh, we, nothing like that would ever really happen. So you know, now tell us some truth. But Jesus told them the truth and they accepted that. And you know, it's possible that some of his listeners, including the lawyer, knew and they had to have known that something like this had really happened and the account is realistic. And you know, if this was a parable, I would give you a teaching from this parable. And you tell me if this teaching sounds good. You, parables often are like an allegory and you make something stand for something else and you know, you know the story. But then if you were to say that the victim becomes the lost sinner, half dead, he's alive physically, but he's dead spiritually. If you say that he's helplessly left on the road of life and then that the priest and the Levite represent the law and the sacrifices, neither of which can save a sinner. And the Samaritan represents Jesus Christ who saves the man, he pays the bill, and he promises to come again. The inn stands for the local church where believers are cared for. And the two pence that, Jesus, that the Good Samaritan paid are the two ordinances, baptism and communion. Works, don't it? But it ain't a parable. This is the truth. That's why this story is impactful and should be. Because if you take this approach to scripture and turn truth into parable or parable into truth, you can make it say anything you want it to say. We've all seen the results of that in, in this world uh, with how some religious zealots and cults have led people astray and led to their deaths many times. You can do that. But we don't want to do that. We just want to take what the Bible says. That's one thing I really like. One thing, that's one thing that Maria would tell you. That, that, and I was speaking with, with, with uh, uh, Hannah. Uh, her maiden name was Gehring. Now she's a heat woe. Uh, she wrote up with us. And I, we were talking on the way up. And I was telling her, one of the things that drew us to the Mennonite church from where we were was I, I can, I, we take the Bible for what it says. You know, I'd always been taught, I mean, come on. How many of you know how I even going to ask that because I'm going to embarrass somebody. Some of us have, or some people have memorized the Sermon on the Mount before. And how wonderful is that? But how many people have understood that, the, have, have thought they understood the Sermon on the Mount was, was hyperbole? You know, I mean, come on, gouging somebody's eye out, you know, and cutting off a hand. What? Really? No. But what does the Bible say? Now, we're not going to do that because Christ has done so much for us. Had Christ not done for us what he has, what other choice would we have? But Christ has. But you don't want to turn something that's truth into parable or vice versa. And that's what this scribe, this lawyer, this Pharisees had done. Well, another thing 
about this is that the road from Jerusalem that made this story so true, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was indeed, uh, you can look back in the history annals and I've done some of that, it was a very dangerous road noted in history as being a very dangerous road. Sometimes it was even given the name the way of blood because so much, so many bad things happened along this way. And not only that, so many priests were leaving the temple and they were transporting these two places from Jericho to Jerusalem. And you know, I don't know how many of you ever thought about it. If you ever read, I mean really, really read Leviticus? You ever think about the priests and the guys who attended the priests there at the temple? That was a bloody place. Blood everywhere. I mean, catching blood, spreading blood, sprinkling blood, even on the earlobes and big toes and stuff like that. I mean, come on. But that's, that's the, what this road had become known as, you know, somewhat by many people, was the way of blood. And, you know, have you ever thought that who was in charge of all the roads at this time? You can tell me. Yes. They, and who, was, who were known as in history, Western history, the greatest road builders in the history of mankind? Rome. They started this stuff. They taught us how to do things today. You know, we did. Why didn't they improve this road? It would have been so easy for Rome to have improved things and made it so it wasn't as dangerous and stationed guards along the way and things like that, knowing that it's a bad situation. But have you ever thought too that it was a whole lot easier? And you know, forget Rome. We can pick on Rome because Rome we always think of as bad, you know? What about the Jews? Why had the Jews not repaired and made better and more safe this way of traveling? They could have done it. How easy would it have been? Could have been done. They had people needed to work. They had work to do. It works, right? But have you ever thought that it's much easier to maintain a religious system than it is to improve the neighborhood? Now, we're talking about mission work, right? Okay, you, you with me on this? Yeah. You know, sometimes just cleaning up a neighborhood can make a great difference and a lot better. And it gives you privileges and, and, and opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise. But it's easier to maintain a, a nice church than it is to improve a neighborhood where the church might be and that sort of thing. So where are we? Well, you know, most of us can think, of, think up excuses as well uh, that like the priest and the Levite did. You know, they ignored the victim. Um, maybe we've ignored victims in the past. I'll never forget one time, and I shouldn't get too long, and I'm known for that, but y'all apologize for that. Maria and I, were, when we were first married, we had a Sunday school teacher. We loved this man. Worst teacher I ever had, but he was a wonderful man, and we loved to be in his class. And one day, we were going down a highway close to where we lived, a sort of state highway sort of thing, and I saw um, Brother Charles. He was on the side of the road, and he waved, and we waved back, and we went on. I know he was waving because he had a problem. I found out later, and boy, he really lambasted us for that, and I felt so bad. How, how short can you feel, you know what I mean? And uh, he was having car trouble, and, and he was a big man, I mean, a really unhealthy big man, but he loved us, and we knew that, and that's what made him such a wonderful teacher and a wonderful man, but, but I didn't know he was having trouble, and he couldn't walk anywhere to ask for help, so he was waiting on somebody to come by, and we came by, and 
you know, as we, as we moved on. And uh, we try not to do that no more, <laughs> you know. But we're just new to edge, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, but it, but that's, these, these sort of things happen. But, yeah, it, it's, it, we, people ignore things that they ought not. And, you know, the priest could say as well, you know, I, I've been serving God all week long in the temple. I got places to go. I need to be home. And maybe he was anxious to get there. And, you know, maybe the bandits were still lurking around this man that was half dead. And maybe they were looking for more victims and they were going to use this guy as bait. And, you know, that's a good excuse, too. And, but, you know, why take a chance? I mean, hey. And anyway, it wasn't my fault that the man was attacked and that he's injured and that, or he's got a flat tire or they got car trouble or, you know, it wasn't my fault that this stuff happened. And, you know, I, uh, surely somebody else will come along to help him, we think. And, you know, um, and, and, you know, so the priest left it to the Levite. You know, the priest went by, he said, well, the Levite will take care of it. He probably knew the Levite was coming. You know, the Levite, you know what he did? He left it to somebody else too. He did just like the priest. Yeah, such is the power of a bad example, right? Got to be careful, the examples that we leave. But by using the Samaritan as a hero, Jesus disarmed the Jews. They didn't have much to be proud of or proud for, but they knew that this was the truth. For the Jews and Samaritans were enemies. So it, was, it was not a Jew helping a Samaritan, which would have been fine. It was a Samaritan helping a Jew who had been ignored by his fellow Jews. Ew. That one cuts, don't it? The Samaritan loved those who hated him. He risked his own life. He spent his own money. And you know, it was, you know what that money, it was two days wages for him that he spent at that end for this injured man. And he was never publicly rewarded or honored as far as we know. You can search the annals of history, you won't find it that this man received honor for doing what he did, but he did it. And why did he do it? Because he left. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. What the Samaritan did helps us better understand what it means to actually show mercy. It also illustrates the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Samaritan identified the needs of the stranger. He had compassion on him. And there was no logical reason why this Samaritan should rearrange his plans and spend his money and help the enemy in need. But you know what? Mercy does not need reasons. It's reason itself to show mercy. Being an expert in the law, the scribes certainly knew that God required his people to show mercy. I mean, man, it's written in Exodus and Leviticus and in Micah to do these things. And he would have known this. Even to strangers and enemies, the Bible says, the Jews were supposed to do. But what did they do with this man? who was of their own kin, ignored him. See how wisely Jesus turned the tables on this lawyer, trying to evade responsibility? The man asked, who was my neighbor? But Jesus asked him a question. Which of these three men was neighbor to the victim? The big question is, which of these three men, excuse me, the big question is, to whom can I be a neighbor? And this has nothing to do with geography, citizenship, race, or even which church one attends. Whenever people need us, there can be neighbors. And like Jesus Christ, we 
can and must show mercy. The lawyer wanted to discuss neighbor in a general way. And oh my goodness, we are good about this. This is one thing I don't like about a lot of Mennonite people that I know that we're, we all still constantly have to try to correct. We're good about discussing neighbor in a general way, but Jesus forced him to consider a specific man in need. How easy is it for us to talk about abstract ideals and to tell people how to help solve their problems. We can discuss things like poverty. We can discuss things like job opportunities and the needs of the community for righteousness. Yet too often we don't personally help feed the hungry or we don't help somebody find a job or help someone find Christ, which is what we are to be about. Of course, the lawyer wanted to make the issue somewhat complex and philosophical, but Jesus made it simple and practical. Jesus moved it from duty to love, from debating to doing. To be sure, our Lord was not condemning discussions or debates. Those are important. He was only warning us not to use these things as excuses for doing nothing. Committees and conferences are not always committed. You ever notice that? You know, I've had the privilege to be involved in lots of committees, and I even have one now. Um, Y'all noticed I set a little table back there showing some stuff from India. That, that's really kind of my heart and where our ministry lies. Uh, mostly, uh, we spend a couple months a year over there and, and got a, about 100 pastors that we work with over there on a regular basis. And, and um, uh, so I apologize, I haven't printed any new books. About 18 or 19 is the newest ones back there. So. You know, if you, I got, but I got more if you want to see it, I'll show you. But uh, it, it, that's just kind of where we are. But I was told after we started SLM India, it kind of started with Brother Ricky um, and SLM, uh, who was SLM Romania and SLM Haiti. Y'all get the newsletters, you know who I'm talking about. But uh, I was told, you know, Brother Ricky, um, we're, we're going to help you with this ministry. You can use our 501c3, but we don't have anything for you. We have no one anywhere near India. We've never worked in India. We don't have any money in the bank. You're on your own, but go for it. You know, do this. And I was like, okay, let's get her done, you know. And, but that's kind of the way that, that it is. But then I was encouraged very early on. One of the men who loved the work that we were involved in, he came to me. He said, Brother Rick, he said, you know, what you're doing is too big for you and I was like dude you telling me you know and he's like yeah he said you need to have a committee surrounding you he said I'm not talking about the mission board they're there and they're doing their thing he said I'm talking about a committee to gather around you and pray for you to love you to encourage you to bounce for you to bounce ideas off of and see what's right and what's wrong and what to do and to encourage others and, and to and to I said well you know let's go so we did and that's been one of the biggest blessings that's ever happened um, being a part of and doing that and uh, and it's so much fun for me um, uh, you know John you know Nathan's our newest committee member you know he, he gets he's he attended his first meeting here you know about a few weeks ago and uh, it, it, to me it's so much fun to see people come on and do I mean he's been involved in India and helping him to do things and and putting his own life on the line a time or two with me and his own financial health sometimes to do some things over there but you know to to do to now just 
take the, the word. Because see, one thing, I, I had a problem. I started something before over there, and it's still going. Um, we're not involved in it anymore. We got somebody else to pick it up. But um, we were supporting a children's home. And we'd been doing that for two or three years, and uh, just Maria and, and my daughter and I. And um, uh, an Indian brother uh, sent me a message one day, and I didn't even know him from Adam. But he said, we have a problem. He said, I've got 30-some kids, and they're starving, and I don't have any money. Can you help? And, okay, you hear stuff like this all the time, right? So um, I had to question him. I said, well, how did this happen? What, what did you do with the money? You know, uh, where is it at? And he said, well, there was a man sponsoring his children's home, and the man uh, died. And when he died, his family didn't have the same pathos for the mission work there as he did, and they were in a different country. So what difference does it make if those children die because they don't have food? Um, you're living healthy in your country, and everything's okay. He said, I need some help. I didn't have anything to help him with other than prayer, which is enough, but that's what we did. But I got to thinking about what we were doing, and so we wanted to gather some other help around so that something happens to Ricky. You know, my children wouldn't go hungry, and we kind of did that. Thank the Lord, and it's working well in that. But in the same way with what we're doing, I mean, we're doing an important thing with with these pastors over there, um, helping save lives and and bring others to Christ, and that's big enough. But if some, and I, I never even thought such a thing. And um, uh, David, after you invited me over, everything was great, and I was looking forward to it. And I even knew what I was going to preach when you asked me to do it, and it, I, I was ready for you. And, uh, but then in July, I had a stroke. And I, I never, I'm only 60, well, at the time I was only 62. I ain't old enough to be involved in none of that kind of mess. And I'm pretty healthy. I mean, I'm not the specimen of nothing, but I, but I couldn't walk. And um, I couldn't use my right arm. And um, the things, and I was beginning with, should I call David and tell him, man, I do, and I'm so sorry, I, I would like to, but, you know, if you can wheel me up there, uh, will, but then the Lord restored that, you know, it took a few weeks and some lots of exercise, but the Lord restored that, and thank, thank him, praise his name for that, but things can happen, we don't know when or how, but there's others who could carry on if something happened, and that's important for all of us to be a part of, well, I'll just tell you one of my very favorite D.L. Moody stories. I loved three. I've read multiple, multiple biographies and love to talk about the man. D.L. Moody did something one time that, that illustrates a point. He was attending a convention uh, on evangelism in Indianapolis during his life there, and he had a singer. You've heard the name Ira Sankey, I'm sure. Um, World-famous man, always has been, beautiful voice. And Mr. Moody invited Sankey one time to show up at 6 o'clock on, on a particular corner near this um, convention hall where they were meeting. And, uh, you know, Sankey, he was gullible, I guess you would say. He showed up, and Moody was there, and Moody had a little box set up, and he put Sankey up on the box and told him, sing, brother. And he got up there, and he started to sing. And, oh, you know, with a voice like that, who would want to anyway? And people started gathering around. And as they started gathering around, Moody started to talk to people and started sharing Christ with them. And then pretty soon the crowd got kind of large, so he, he just invited everybody from the soapbox into the convention hall where they were going to be having some meetings here soon. And these people came in. Pretty soon that place was pretty well packed. About 30 minutes later, um, after sharing the word of life with these people, it was about like 7.30 and the delegates started showing up to the convention. 
And uh, so Moody made the announcement. He said, okay, folks, thank you for being here, and God bless you, and gave a quick invitation. He said, now we have these people who are coming in here to talk about, um, let me get the name exactly right, because I'll miss it. Um, anyone time? Oh, yeah, the, the name of the conference was How to Reach the Masses. And that's, you know, uh, if you like to get a needle in, boy, he got one in. They're showing up to talk about it, and Moody's already done it and got these people here. But now he has to excuse all these people out of the convention hall for the delegates to come in and talk about it. Kind of like the fishless fisherman parable. You've heard, you've heard that one. Well, we may read about the Good Samaritan and only think about the high cost of caring, but it's far more costly not to care. The priest and the Levite lost far more than their, because of their neglect than the Samaritan did by his concern. They lost the opportunity to become better men and good stewards of what God had given them. They could have been good influences in a bad world, but they chose to be bad influences. The Samaritans, once, one deed of mercy has inspired sacrificial ministry all over the world ever since. Never say that any ministry is wasted. God sees to it that no act of loving service in Christ's name is ever lost. To the thieves, this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit. So they attacked him. To the priest and the Levite, he was a nuisance to avoid. So they ignored him. But to the Samaritan, he was a neighbor to love and to help. So he took care of him. What Jesus said to the lawyer, he says to us, go and keep on doing likewise. That's the literal translation of what that verse says. Just a few points I'm gonna leave with you. Jesus said, happy are ye if you will do these things. You can reference John 13, 17, 1 Peter 3, 14, and 1 Peter 4, 14, if you like. Be sure that you're doing, not just thinking, not just feeling, but that you are doing something for God and for someone else other than yourself. Find a need that isn't being met. There are needs all over this world, in your neighborhoods and in my neighborhoods. Meet those needs. And when you meet those needs, you get an opportunity. That opportunity is to share Christ. But if you don't meet the need, you don't get to do that. You know, If you can't do anything about it, to say, I'll pray for you, brother, is okay. But if you can do something about it, don't say, I'll pray for you, brother. You do something, then you pray. Do it in Jesus' name and for his glory. It's never for our own. Remember, and this is so important, but we forget it. Doggone, we forget it. If you don't have any problems in life, you don't get any grace. You ever think about that? God gives us grace as Christians. Every opportunity he gives us. But if you don't have a problem to fix, you don't get grace to fix it. What do you need grace for? Right? But nobody wants problems. <laughs> if we want to experience God's grace, we must experience God-sized problems. It's just the truth of the matter. You know, we live our lives to blend in, to get along, to be okay. That's not enough. We've got to step out, do something else with that. And then I'll end with you with Psalm 126, 6. It says, he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. 
It don't end there. It says bringing his sheaves behind him. I look forward to that day. You know, we're all going to meet the Lord one day. We're either going to meet him as Savior or we're going to meet him as Lord. But he's Lord either way. I want to meet him as Savior. And I don't want to meet him empty-handed. What you got to bring with him? You know, talks about crowns. Man, don't you want crowns to throw down at Jesus' feet? I sure do. I trust you do too. Well, Lord bless you. We'll see you this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the privilege to have been together today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, for the simplicity of your word. But Lord, help us to see that simplicity and to know what you want us to do and to be in the world around us. Lord, you've told us to be in the world, but not of the world. Help us to do that. Help us to bring honor and glory to you alone. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.